Welcome to TIFF Talk, sponsored by Endogastric Solutions, a podcast that interviews physicians and real-life patients about the most common gastrointestinal disorder, GERD, commonly known as chronic acid reflux. Listen to patients and physicians interact, break down the disease from different perspectives, and learn how taking the next step in your treatment can change your life. For our audio listeners, you can see visuals on our YouTube channel at GERD Help. The TIF procedure may or may not be appropriate for your health condition. Only your doctor can explain the benefits and risks of all treatment options. Results may vary. Visit GERDHelp.com for more clinical data. The TIF procedure for reflux was developed by Endogastric Solutions Incorporated. My name is Wendy Prophet. I am with Endogastric Solutions, and my colleague Lynn McFadden will be joining us to present your questions to our esteemed guest this evening. I'd love to introduce you to Dr. Arslan Kaloon. He serves as Chief, Gastroenter- Chief of Gastroenterology for Erlanger Gastroenterology and has practiced in Chattanooga for the past 10 years. He's board certified and fellowship trained in gastroenterology. And Dr. Kaloon earned his medical degree at Aga Khan University in Karachi, Pakistan. His residency was completed at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center and his gastroenterology and hepatology fellowship was completed at the Indiana University of School of Medicine. Dr. Kaloon is the region's only gastroenterologist who specializes in transoral incisionless fundiplication, an FDA cleared procedure designed to treat chronic gastroesophageal disease. Dr. Heath Giles also joins us this evening and has been in practice in Chattanooga for the past 10 years as well. Dr. Giles specializes in general and endocrinology surgery and is certified by the American Board of Surgery. He's an associate professor for the Department of Surgery and is the General Surgery Residency Program Director for the University of Tennessee College of Medicine at Chattanooga. Dr. Giles operates at Erlanger Hospital, CHI Memorial, CHI Memorial Hickson in Park Ridge Hospital, and he practices at University Surgical Associates. Thank you so much for being with us this evening, gentlemen. Thank you so much, Wendy, for having us. Excited to be here. It's my pleasure. So what we'd love to do is have our audience submit questions in the comments box throughout our broadcast. We will get to those as time allows, and we'll go ahead and get started. Dr. Kaloon, I'd love to start with you first. If you could talk to us a little bit about GERD. What is it? How do folks start to identify whether or not they're suffering from symptoms? What do those symptoms look like, both typical and atypical? Sounds good. Thank you, Wendy. Um, GERD, just like uh, what the word would mean, gastroesophageal reflux disease, it's a disorder of the upper GI tract where uh, patients start to experience symptoms of reflux or the stomach contacts coming up in their in their esophagus and in their throat. Um, majority of the patients would actually complain of a regurgitation feeling where they feel that food contents are starting to come up uh, most of the times after they eat. Um, sometimes they can um, have symptoms of heartburn or where they feel some chest burning and that can happen um, sometimes after meals, sometimes you know when they wake up first thing in the morning. Um, those are generally or sometimes chest discomfort that comes with that uh, can be one of these uh, presenting symptoms. 
Um, sometimes you, they can have very atypical symptoms, which are not necessarily regurgitation or heartburn or chest discomfort, but they can present with chronic cough. Um, they can present with chest pain that uh, could mimic very similar or look very similar to like a, a heart pain. Um, and sometimes, you know, allergies and some of the other symptoms uh, which patients may perceive as, as seasonal allergies could present very similar to that. So it could be a very, very presentation um, of acid reflux uh, that can manifest in many different ways. Very good. Thank you so much. You know, we, we do hear of the occasional patient who actually shows up in the emergency room. Do you see folks who come in thinking that they're having cardiac episodes and end up seeing you instead? Absolutely. Very good question again. Um, yes, I mean, a lot of times, you know, patients who do present uh, to the emergency department with chest pains are diagnosed to have non-cardiac chest pain. Um, and then um, our service or gastroenterology um, uh, physicians do get involved in the workup for that. And that could be a manifestation of acid reflux and, and, and severe GERD, where it can cause heartburn or ulceration in the esophagus that can cause pain. Um, sometimes acid reflux can even trigger spasms or um, episodes of chest discomfort that happen because of that reason. Um, so we do uh, end up getting referrals from emergency department and even cardiology department um, for evaluation of uh, what is deemed to be then a non-cardiac chest pain. Thank you. Okay. So how do your patients tell you that they've attempted to manage their symptoms? and? And what are your recommendations for managing GERD? Dr. Giles, I'd always I'd I'd, I'd also love for you to, to kind of weigh in on this because I'm assuming that patients that you operate on who have a, a hiatal hernia sometimes experience symptoms similar to what we're discussing regarding GERD, correct? That is correct. Um, you know, we we tend to get involved later down the line. Uh, your typical reflux patients are going to be managed by your gastroenterologist. And then patients that are found to have hiatal hernias or reflux that can't be managed with medications tend to end up in my office for uh, discussions about surgery. And, and we tend to operate on, on patients who have the typical reflux symptoms that are unable to be managed, you know, for a, a short period of time with the medications or develop complications of that. Or in some cases, even patients who have very atypical symptoms including pain uh, that really can't be controlled with medications or uh, patients who have trouble swallowing. And, and there's multiple re different reasons why patients have difficulty swallowing when you're talking about uh, reflux and issues with a hiatal hernia. Sometimes it's irritation of the esophagus that causes the muscles not to work appropriately. Other times it can be narrowing of the esophagus related to the long-term acid um, exposure, not being well treated. And then sometimes it's just the hernia itself compressing on the esophagus and making it difficult for food to go down. And, and those are the patients that I'm most often going to be involved with. Thank you. Thank you. Dr. I would Flynn, like to add, add a little bit to what Dr. Giles uh, said. Exactly. You know, oftentimes we do see patients who present as a manifestation of a complication of acid reflux and a hiatal hernia. Um, so a lot of times when patients have had acid reflux for a very long time, they can develop scars or what we call stricturing disease of the esophagus where they present as trouble swallowing. Um, so a lot of uh, our patients would actually, the first pre presentation or the first presenting symptom to us would be that they're not able to swallow as nicely as they had been. Um, sometimes they just have a feeling of a lump in their throat, uh, which could be a manifestation of GERD. 
Uh, and those are the things that you know we we pay a lot more closer attention to because it could um, uh, it could mimic um, with some other you know more uh, dangerous conditions like uh, uh, esophageal cancer or other dysmotility disorders sometimes. Um, so oftentimes, um, trouble swallowing is the main reason that they're seeking medical care and eventually is a, is a result of, of severe GERD, uh, which has gone untreated for quite a bit of time. Interesting. Thank you. So can you talk a little bit about what unmanaged GERD can actually lead to? Great question. Yes, I mean, uh, GERD, uh, which a lot of people do not realize, is that it can cause some long-term effects on their overall health. Um, one thing I just mentioned is that, you know, repeated or prolonged exposure of acid reflux, which goes on uncontrolled, can cause uh, inflammation, which is called esophagitis. So one, it can cause um, chest discomfort. Uh, it can cause nausea. So a lot of people just don't feel good enough to eat and they can have other problems with that. And once that inflammation tries to heal up, they can cause, it can cause scarring of the esophagus where they can have issues with swallowing and, and, and trouble um, eating or enjoying the food that they would otherwise eat. And as it gets more and more long and long-term and chronic, uh, they can develop other problems which could be a little bit more dangerous, you know. Um, uh, a lot of patients can develop Barrett's esophagus. Um, now, Barrett's esophagus is a condition that um, uh, a lot of people may have heard but may not understand correctly. It is where uh, they develop abnormal cells in the, in the lower part of the esophagus where the acid keeps uh, uh, causing injury. And those abnormal cells then can go through uh, transformation over time where they can develop some precancerous changes and it could be a precursor for an esophageal cancer. Um, especially in patients who have other risk factors um, that can uh, lead to esophageal cancer as well. Uh, and some of those things could be um, notably long-standing reflux, anywhere between five to 10 years of uncontrolled reflux, untreated reflux. Um, it's quite more common in men, um, especially men who are older than 50 years of age, um, and uh, patients who are uh, Caucasian. So studies have shown that um, Older white men uh, with long-standing acid reflux, family history, smoking and alcohol use, um, and obesity, these are all uh, risk factors to develop Barrett's esophagus, uh, which can further lead to progression to an esophageal cancer, which could be a horrible thing. Um, can you also just talk a little bit about the options that are available to treat GERD? I realize this is a, a, a very wide spectrum, um, but the if you could touch on the high points, that'd be great. Sure. Um, now, a lot of, I mean, as we know, um, majority of the patients would experience some degree of GERD during their lifetime. Um, majority of the acid reflux can be managed with lifestyle changes and, and um, some over-the-counter medications oftentimes. Um, so lifestyle does play a major role in terms of management of GERD. And what I mean by that is um, losing weight is, is a big help. Um, so weight loss definitely helps with decreasing intra-abdominal pressure that can lead to more acid reflux. Um, also, um, following some recommendations around meal times, you know, um, eating is where most of the acid gets produced in the stomach, and that is when uh, it can reflux up, you know, if you have a faulty uh, lower esophageal sphincter or a hiatal hernia that can contribute and make that uh, transition easy for people to reflux. Um, so um, trying to avoid big meals, um, especially close to bedtime, 
and also avoiding things that can cause more reflux, like a lot of carbonated beverages, um, a lot of caffeinated drinks, um, sometimes spicy foods, sometimes um, things that are high in sugar content, peppermint, um, sometimes, you know, diets that are rich in tomatoes, you know, a lot of stuff that we all enjoy to eat. Um, those can lead to um, chronic reflux. So if patients are educated really good about following some of these measures in terms of changing their lifestyle, um, that can help quite a bit. If that alone does not do it, uh, then there's treatments available um, that can be used as over-the-counter medicines like H2 blockers, um, proton pump inhibitors that can be started as, as first-line medical therapy, um, and see if patients do well with those things. Um, if despite having tried everything, um, including even um, raising the head of the bed at night, you know, where people um, can sleep with head propped up can help big time. And if all these, you know, conservative or um, non-invasive measures uh, fail, then we start getting into uh, something more specialized where uh, there could be options which could be endoscopic and there could be options that are surgical that can help uh, fix that valve that leads to uh, repeated exposure uh, with acid into the esophagus. And in that domain, then we have several different options that are out there. Uh, there's endoscopic therapies um, like uh, transoral incisionless fundoplication, uh, which is uh, which is a very uh, durable uh, procedure and a very easy to do uh, procedure that can help you know fix their valve and also um, um, take care of small hiatal hernias as well, and that can help with reflux. Um, then there is other surgical uh, other endoscopic procedures. Um, like uh, causing um, the lower esophagus to be uh, burned with a technique called radiofrequency ablation that can then cause scarring and make that uh, area more tight, which can then prevent reflux. Um, and there have been some options uh, in the past, you know, where um, there could be magnets placed along the lower esophageal sphincter that can keep it tight. Um, you know, we have options to perform mucosectomy, which um, is resecting some part of the mucosa in the lower esophagus, then which would heal with the scar and make that whole area a little bit more tight so that, you know, there's less of reflux. Um, and then, you know, there are uh, combined endoscopic and surgical options and some surgical options that uh, I'll, I'll just pull in Dr. Giles into this uh, that have been very, very durable um, that uh, that really help patients with large hernias and um and patients who've not responded to medical therapy. So maybe Heath, you can you can uh, further um, guide us on to some of those surgical options as well. Absolutely. Um, and so when by the time they get to my office, these are patients who, once again, either have a large hernia or they're suffering pretty significantly from reflux or have a complication of the re, uh, reflux, such as Barrett's esophagus, and we're trying to prevent progression on to ultimate esophageal cancer. And so my job as a surgeon is to recreate the valve system uh, and to repair the anatomy that's been uh, altered by the hernia. So just to kind of back up just a little bit and some of the things that I, I tell my patients, and I think the first thing to understand is what a hernia is. And so a hernia is just a hole in a muscle and, and this allows one organ or, or something from a cavity to travel through that hole into a new space. And most, because the abdomen is very high pressure, all hernias really emanate from inside the abdomen out. And in this case, this type of hernia is, is where it's a hole in the diaphragm that allows the esophagus to travel from inside the chest and go through down to the stomach. And so what happens is this hole gets too big and the stomach actually protrudes up into the chest, which 
really alters the anatomy in such a way that it, it, it gets rid of the normal reflux mechanisms that the body has in place. A lot of the ligaments that create the valve at the lower esophageal sphincter are damaged by the hernia. And so my job is to recreate the normal anatomy and get the stomach out of the chest. And we do that either laparoscopically or robotically. And once that's done, then we close that hole down in an effort to prevent the stomach from herniating back into the chest. Once we've done that, then we have multiple options on exactly how we then help control the reflux. Some degree of the reflux will be, um, will be helped by just fixing the hernia itself, but we need to recreate that valve. And prior to this new procedure that, um, that is called the CTIF or the, the, in, the endoscopic fund application, we would take part of the stomach that lives up around the spleen and wrap that around the esophagus. And we would wrap it uh, at a certain degree of tightness depending on how well the esophagus is able to squeeze uh, so that we don't have uh, post-operative trouble with uh, swallowing. And so that's how we recreated the valve prior to this procedure. Now we have other options for smaller hernias where Dr. Kloon and I can work together to have me go in and fix the hernia and then have him come in and actually recreate that valve endoscopically. This has several advantages. Um, number one, it's, it's, it's less risky, honestly, from a, um, from a surgical perspective. Uh, even though we don't have very many problems with this, taking down the blood vessels that connect the stomach to the spleen uh, could potentially, that's the one place you'd have bleeding in this case that could be significant. Um, and then that part of the stomach that we have to use to create the fundoplication is the part of the stomachs that's responsible for controlling gas. And, and the most common complaint I get from patients, I've been, like I said, I've been doing fundal applications for a long time. The most common complaint across the board is bloating. And uh, almost everybody have, they, they'll say, I feel fantastic, but I have a lot of bloating. And that's just something that the body has to, has to adapt to now that part, the part that was previously designed to care for that is no longer there because we had to use that to wrap around the uh, esophagus. And I think that's one of the major advantages that we see with this newer procedure is that we're able to avoid the riskier part of the procedure from a bleeding standpoint and continue to have that part of the stomach available to control gas and decrease bloating. Very good, thank you. So yeah, if I can add a few things, I, I think yeah. um, in my experience as, as Dr. Giles was also alluding to, we have moved from very segregated approaches in terms of medical management or you know conservative management to more of a combined team approach management for acid reflux. Um, I think that's where we have seen the best and, uh, and and the most durable benefits in terms of management for acid reflux, where we can combine medical and surgical knowledge and put it to use together uh, for the long-lasting um, outcomes in terms of patient uh, satisfaction afterwards. So I think now we have techniques that are a combination of both medical and surgical um, side of things, and, and that probably has shown to be the most uh, beneficial for in terms of patient outcomes overall. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Lynn, I, I think we have a lot of questions coming in, so I'm going to go ahead and we'll pause here, go ahead to and get to some of those. We will cover a, a bit more about the, the procedure that the doctors have both discussed in just a second, but Lynn, I'd, I'd love to, to go ahead and hear what the audience is thinking. You bet. Thanks, Wendy. We do. We have a lot of questions, so this is really good. Um, first came in from Tina, and you did address this a little bit, but 
Um, I was diagnosed with gastritis three years ago. I'm constantly feeling sick, nauseous, and pain sometimes all day in my stomach. I've been on several medications, but I'm having a, I'm having the same problem. She's asking what she should do. So I'll take that on. Um, I think um, it could be um, a few different things that could present very similar way. Uh, obviously, gastritis, which is the inflammation of the stomach, can be um, a problem in itself, which could be medication-induced, which could be disorders of the stomach. Uh, but at the same time, you know, if you have a stomach that is not uh, contracting or squeezing normally, it can lead to a lot of retention of food, and that sometimes can continue to produce acid more long-term. Uh, where things just don't move down into the intestine and then your stomach continues to get full of uh, acid contents and then it can start causing more um, uh, chronic and more frequent reflux. And that reflux can then um, cause some problems re related to inflammation in the esophagus that can make people sick. Um, similarly, it could be other things in the abdomen, you know, with, with chronic gastritis, you know, an H. pylori uh, bacteria is a very common organism that can cause continuous inflammation, and that needs to be tested for. Um, and if that's the case, that can be treated with antibiotics. So I think uh, it would definitely require some more thorough investigations uh, into some disorders that can be involving both stomach and the esophagus. That's excellent advice. And just um, we constantly are, are uh, letting folks know to just get evaluated, to continuously get evaluated. If you're meeting those barriers or not finding the reprieve you need, consistently continue to ask for questions or ask for answers. Um, we have another question here. I'm told I'm having issues from, uh, I'm sorry, um, I'll skip to this this one here. Uh, oh, I lost it, I apologize. This one, Matt is asking, can I get back to eating Portillo's and Chicago-style pizza again after getting a TIF procedure? <laughs> then that's a great question. And um, um, the answer to that is yes. That is the final goal and the intent that we want people to enjoy their lives and, and, and have more of a normal lifestyle that they would um, or they were enjoying before they had acid reflux issues. Um, so yes, I mean, the goal um, for these procedures are to give people normal quality of life, a good quality of life, without medicines and without uh, having to have a lot of restrictions in terms of what they can and cannot do. So yes, that is what we achieve for. And uh, some of the results that we have uh, we've seen, um, I, can, I can tell you some of the patients when they come back after having these combined procedures, um, they're the happiest people, you know, they, they just feel like, you know, they're, they're reborn because they've never felt that great in terms of wanting to eat, in terms of enjoying uh, their life as much as, you know, once all this problem gets taken care of. So yes, that would be the eventual goal that we try to strive for is to give people good quality of life afterwards. If I could, I'd like to add add to that um, and helping people understand that this this procedure is really not an acid reducing procedure. This is an acid controlling procedure. And so people who have excessive amounts of acid in their stomach have ulcer disease inside their stomach. This this procedure won't fix that problem. And so they may still have to have some dietary modifications or actually take medications for those things. This is to stop the reflux coming back up into their esophagus. And I think people get somewhat confused sometimes uh, about those two issues. So that's why it's important to, con to consult with your physician uh, as far as exactly what your disease process is so that they can help you understand which limitations you should have or if you should have any at all.
That's an excellent point. And I think that that actually leads us to a, a, a good segue into talking a little bit about how you identify what's really going on. You know, how once a patient comes in and, and they see you and start to go down the pathway of, you know, treatment, what does that typically look like as far as just the modalities you use for diagnostic testing to kind of figure out who's got what going on? Right. So I think uh, majority of the times the testing starts with getting a very detailed history, uh, you know, knowing about their lifestyle, um, educating them about some of the risk factors that can make acid reflux worse, um, trying to find out about their family history, anything genetic that could be uh, going on. Um, and then, you know, most of the investigations would start with, um, with getting an upper endoscopy done, uh, which is a camera evaluation of their esophagus and, and, and the top part of their stomach um, to kind of look into a few things. You know, one, obviously we're trying to see how that valve is opening and closing, uh, and that can help us with that, you know, that if that valve um, looks to be wide open and, and that gives us an idea that it's faulty, it's just not closing enough um, after, you know, there's too much acid in the stomach and it would be uh, a set for a setup for for reflux. Um, also, some of the other things that we can evaluate for at the time of endoscopy is is a hiatal hernia, and kind of measure how big, small, and how much of that is contributing to the overall problem. Uh, and then again, uh, we also look for anything uh, that could be that could be more um, uh, more serious, like Barrett's esophagus or uh, any significant inflammation uh, or god forbid an esophageal cancer that can present with um, uh, uh, with no symptoms of its own and some of the manifestations could be just heartburn or chest discomfort um, that has gone unnoticed for for many many years so that's typically where we start um, after we've gone through that initial testing and we're thinking that um, uh, patients are not getting relief with just medical management or uh, medicines uh, and, and by the way, I can tell you that, you know, a lot of patients that are nowadays seeking care for acid reflux are also um, um, trying to get off some of these medicines, which um, they have used over long periods of time. And there's some reported side effects uh, in the literature related to um, sometimes kidney disease, sometimes, you know, electrolyte imbalance, sometimes interaction with other medicines. So that's another one reason that patients... Um, would like to have more of a definitive therapy where they may not uh, end up needing to use these medicines long term. So, you know, going back, um, so some of the other things that we do after we have done an upper endoscopy is to make sure that before we fix their valve or you know do more of an uh, more of a uh, anti-reflux procedure, we like to make sure that they don't have any dysmotility disorders, you know, of the esophagus, where if the esophagus isn't too weak or they don't have anything that is causing too much of a tightness or a spasm in the esophagus, so that we're diagnosing the right thing and then going after the right uh, problem uh, in terms of a, of a procedural fix. Um, and sometimes, you know, we do end up getting some x-rays, which involves giving um, drinking a dye uh, and then watching on an x-ray how that dye goes down. Uh, which can sometimes involve a tablet, which is a barium tablet, and see how that passes through their gastroesophageal junction. So these are some of the most common testing. Um, sometimes, you know, we have to do some more advanced testing, which could include uh, what we call impedance testing, just to kind of see if it's all related to acid reflux or it could be non-acid problems. Um, there could be some other, you know, issues that could be causing them to have similar symptoms, uh, which may not be just related to acid reflux only. Um, and that's where they can get a 48-hour pH testing. Um, they can have an impedance testing. Um, now there's a new 
procedure out there called uh, endoflip that can also um, help us diagnose any dysmotility disorders. Um, so that's kind of the scheme of things as to how we follow uh, in terms of workup. Excellent, thank you. Dr. Giles, is that typically what you see? What, how do you um, assess your patients when they present? I realize you guys have a, a relationship where sometimes you might see somebody that needs to go see Dr. Kaloon first and then come back to you and vice versa. What, what do you typically see with your patients who present and what do you order? Yeah, so I'm going to see those patients first for, for really one of two reasons. Number one, they had a hiatal hernia identified on a scan for another reason. Uh, whether that's a cancer follow-up scan for breast cancer or colon cancer, or they had a car wreck and had scans to ensure that there were no injuries and they find a hernia and then they refer that straight on to a surgeon as opposed to sending that to a gastroenterologist. Secondly, because of my other specialty where I, I specialize in endocrine surgery, I see a lot of patients with uh, goiters who can, who can cause dysphagia and, and sometimes that gets confused. They see a small nodule and they assume that the dysphagia that they have is related to that. And I first go down the pathway of making sure it's not something else before I commit them to another operation that may not help them. And so uh, that's where I'll a lot of times either refer that patient over to my GI colleagues, or sometimes I may go straight to the bear and swallow and say, let's make sure there's not a problem uh, that we can explain from this otherwise before before we head down a different pathway. So that's mostly what I'm going to see. The rest of these procedures, I need my GI colleagues to uh, to help me with those endoscopy, manometry, impedance, uh, endoflip. All those things are performed by by my uh, GI colleagues, and I'm uh, I, I use them you know without question every time. Fabulous. Thank you very much. Um, Lynn, any anything you want to interject here, or should we should we keep going for just a sec? Yeah, I think there's two questions that touch you just touched on that I'll lump together, and then there are a couple of procedural questions here. Can go, can GERD cause an asthmatic cough? And I'm told that I have sinus issues from my GERD. Would the TIF procedure help with this? So again, very good questions. Um, now. Um, Asthma can alone cause cough, um, but GERD can further um, exacerbate things. So um, there's an entity, what we call laryngopharyngeal reflux, or a lot of common people would know this as an LPR, um, where acid reflux is so bad or the regurgitation of condense is so bad that, you know, patients would get it all the way up into their throat and then, you know, things can uh, cause some aspiration into the lungs, which can lead to chronic uh, lung or vocal cord irritation that can lead to worsening reflux, uh, worsening cough symptoms. So yes, um, in patients who have primary lung problems uh, or patients without primary lung problems, if they have bad or severe LPR, uh, they can have a chronic cough, which um, despite you know what you do for your asthma treatment would just not go away till the acid reflux part is controlled. Um, so yes, I mean, we do get a lot of uh, patients referred to us from our pulmonary colleagues um, where patients have had chronic aspiration symptoms and then uh, it turns out to be that it was a severe acid reflux situation. Um, similarly, uh, the other question about um, sinuses and allergies. Um, a lot of patients do have vocal cord irritation with, um, with uh, sinusitis or sinus drainage causing post-nasal drip. Um, and those things can get worse. You know, patients can get sinus problems if they have uh, severe reflux because it, it goes all the way into their throat and then uh, that can cause um, sometimes chronic sinusitis problems as well. So we, we do work as a multidisciplinary team with our ENT colleagues, with our pulmonary colleagues, with our uh, primary care colleagues, um, 
cardiology colleagues and obviously our surgical colleagues in terms of a comprehensive management for some of these disorders that may just not look like a simple reflux or a heartburn. Excellent, thank you. I think a couple more maybe related to this. Uh, we talked about uh, management. So a lot of these folks, the first line of defense is the PPI medication management. So we have a question here about um, after having the TIF procedure, will I still have to be on PPI medication? And then from Ryan, I'm on PPIs now prescribed by my doctor. How long do you recommend patients stay on them? And then how do I determine if I'm a TIF candidate with my primary care doctor? So there's three questions there, and I'm happy to repeat if you need me to. Yeah, I don't have a very good memory, so you may have to help me on that. Uh, so in terms of if patients can get off the PPI therapy, um, for a short amount of time soon after the, uh, the TIF procedure is done, we do like to keep patients on PPIs because it actually helps with their recovery and, and help with the inflammation process and their healing. Um, now, majority of the studies that have shown um, that a lot of majority of the patients are able to de-escalate PPI therapy and, and a, a big portion of them are able to actually get off of that. Um, and like what Dr. Giles was saying earlier that, you know, this procedure helps control reflux. It cannot eliminate acid production from the stomach. So a lot of times, you know, they do need acid reflux medicines or PPIs for other things that could be contributing to reflux as well. Uh, but majority of the patients are able to um, de-escalate or get off um, long-term. Uh, remind me, what was the second question? I think you answered both the first two, but the last one was, how can I determine if I'm a TIF candidate with my primary care doctor? Now, that would entail, um, I, I think, more of a discussion with a gastroenterologist um, to kind of see what has been tried um, and what kind of... Um, a problem that they may be having in terms of uh, if there's a big hiatal hernia that needs to be looked at, um, if it's if it's uh, non-response to medical therapy, um, or their medicines may have to be changed or switched to a different category. So there's all sorts of things that would need to be addressed uh, with the gastroenterologist. So I think the first step would be um, to um, have uh, a visit with a gastroenterologist to have a further workup done. That's great advice. Uh, Wendy, I have a couple CTIF questions. You want to pause and yeah, yeah. So actually, what I would I want to I want to kind of just if if we could just quickly talk a little bit about the CTIF procedure. Maybe Dr. Giles, you start with you know your role in the CTIF procedure, and then go over to the the TIF side uh, with Dr. Kalim. Absolutely. So as the name implies, it's a combined procedure. And, and I think that is the critical component to this. Uh, for so long, gastroenterology and surgery have kind of been in different camps as, as to exactly the best way to treat uh, reflux. And, and I think one of the things that this is doing is getting us all on the same page uh, and allowing us to hit the middle ground. I think everybody agrees the patient with their entire stomach and their chest probably needs it repaired. But the patient who's been on medicine for a few years and uh, still struggling, maybe wants to come off medicine, has a small hernia. I think those are patients who are, who are excellent candidates for this procedure. So from my perspective, the one nice thing about this is it doesn't really change anything that I do. This is a procedure that I've done for 10 years. It really doesn't change. The positioning is the same on the table. My incisions are the same. Uh, and I do my part rather than and doing the entire surgery. I do really the first half of the procedure. So as we talked about before, I'll, I'll pull the stomach out of the chest 
uh, and repair the, that muscle, which is a critical component to this, is getting that getting that muscle repaired so that there's there's some scaffolding there for for the stomach to rest on uh, to cre- help to create that barrier again. And then uh, once that's completed, rather than at that point going in and dividing those blood vessels and preparing to do the wrap, I stop. And we close, and then we allow our GI colleagues to come in and um, and do their part of the fundification. Good, Dr. I can talk about the second part. You know, um, so uh, exactly what Dr. Giles said. You know, once the hernia has been repaired, it's half the battle in these people. So once their stomach has been pulled into the abdominal cavity, uh, then what we go would do is we we go go into an established platform where we use a device. Um, which um, can be mounted on the top of an endoscope. And then we go through their mouth, down their throat, and into their stomach. So this does not require any incisions or opening up um, any big cavities. And it's it's a device that has been made or specially designed uh, to work uh, within the, the GI tract and within the GI cavity, uh, where we are then able to go in into the stomach, you know, and we look back on ourselves. And it is specially designed where we can try to recreate um, a fundoplication procedure um, uh, endoscopically, um, which involves using um, uh, plastic T fasteners, and and the the best part about this is that we can actually look at what we're doing, and we can make it um, a bigger wrap, we can make it a tighter wrap, and we can look at how long of a valve we need to create, or a, you know how short we need to create. So it can give us a few different um, controls in terms of you know how we want to deal with it. Um, so that makes it um, very easy once the hernia has been repaired. Um, and now all we're, what we're trying to do is to create a big, nice valve in terms of an angle that uh, that is a natural angle to prevent acid from going up. Um, and that takes us about um, uh, 35 to 40 minutes sometimes. Uh, and combined with some of the surgical portion with, uh, I think, uh, Dr. Giles, it takes you about 25, 30 minutes to do your part. So we're able to um, finish both sides of the procedures in about an hour from start to finish, or maybe just above, just above over an hour. Marvelous. And can you both talk a little bit about the recovery aspect uh, that, that each of these, or that this combined procedure involves? You want to take on that, Dr. Giles? Sure. Um, so I think you have to look at recovery in two phases. Uh, the first part of the recovery is the physical recovery. So recovering from the actual operation component of it. So from the incisions, these are done laparoscopically. Uh, there is very minimal discomfort as it, re- as, uh, as it pertains to the incisions themselves, much similar to uh, a laparoscopic cholecystectomy, which is just getting your gallbladder removed. Most patients are back to doing fairly normal stuff within three to four days after that. So from an incision standpoint, really not much difference. Most of the discomforts in the back and that's just related to pulling the muscles of the diaphragm back together. Most of that pain is sensed in the back as opposed to in the front. So you may sense that discomfort for three to four days, but in most cases, people are up, you know, within hours after surgery walking and the next morning, they look fantastic. Uh, the second part of the recovery uh, comes from the, the recreation of, of the anatomy and the swallowing aspect related to the fund application. And I'll, I'll let Dr. Kaloon speak to that part. So, yeah. So as far as the fund application part is concerned, um, since it's all endoscopic, which does not involve big cutting, um, the healing process and the recovery is actually very quick. Majority of our patients are able to start drinking some liquids that same night. Um, we just have to control their nausea because, you know, it's really in that area that can create, cause a lot of nausea. So we do give them um, some intravenous um, nausea medicines um, 
just so that you know they don't hiccup or or retch too hard so that you know they can undo some of the things that we do uh, and that is just to give them some supportive relief for that one night um, the next morning we start them on more of a liquid uh, diet you know which they can tolerate and then following that you know we, we try to have them follow sort of a sort of a um, uh, a gradual uh, graded diet over time so that it can actually give them all the nutrition that they're, they're needing uh, and at the same time it can actually give them time to recover from from a surgical procedure and and getting um, that inflammation under control um, so they are able to start eating um, soft diet within a few weeks time um, and then in about four to six weeks time they're back to kind of eating everything regular diet and, and, and all of that so it does involve one night of observation in the hospital after the procedures are done, uh, but they're starting to eat, you know, right away um, after that those procedures are done, and once their pain is controlled and they're not um, having retching or vomiting. Very good, thank you. Um, can you talk a little bit about what your patients do to prepare for their procedure and and you know how they how they resume their normal activities if they are physically active what what does that typically look like now from my standpoint you know um there's usually not a huge uh, amount of limitations in terms of physical activity it, it's more to do um, a, of a surgical recovery after a laparoscopic um, surgical uh, procedure um, and, I, and I'll have uh, Dr. Jals, you know, talk more about that as to, you know, what the physical limitations could be after that. In terms of GI, I mean, we have had patients that can actually go back to desk work within the next uh, couple of days after, you know, their procedures have been done. So a lot of them actually feel fine unless, you know, it may require more of a strenuous work. Yeah, from, from a surgical aspect, um, we tend to deal in a, in a slightly different arena than, than our GI colleagues in most cases. So we're on operating under general anesthesia. So there are some additional preparations that'll tend to have to be made to some patients um, specifically, you know, as weight loss is, is a huge component of it. And it's not just a good component of it for after the surgery. It's such a good component for before the surgery to prepare the body uh, for it. We, we would never go out and just run a, run a race. Uh, we, we would train for it. And so uh, the, the newer methodology for surgery is that, you know, we're going to essentially train for, for the operation. So uh, as much weight loss as possible, obviously stopping smoking uh, or cutting down significantly is that definitely hurts the lungs and it also hurts uh, the oxygenation of the tissues that are gonna be required to heal in order for this to go well. Um, and then from a standpoint of other medical comorbidities, sometimes we have to, to have medical clearance or heart clearance in order to, to do the procedure uh, on the front end. With regards to, to afterwards, uh, typically, what I tell patients is I, I try to limit the the lifting and bending activities for about six weeks. Uh, most healing is going to really finish in about three months, but at six weeks, we're about 80% healed. And so it's safe to start relatively normal activity from a standpoint of lifting and, and running and, and doing bending activities uh, at six weeks. But up until then, I try to limit that as much as possible to try to give the body a chance to heal in an effort to try to keep the hernia fixed. Very good. Thank you. So, Les, as, as we kind of roll into the, the last part of the program, I will say that we do have a lot more questions, and I'm going to apologize because we're on a tight schedule this evening. We've got to get Dr. Giles, who was kind enough to, uh, to be with us this evening with a very tight call schedule. We've got to go ahead and honor that commitment and, and let him loose soon. 
Um, I would love to just take this opportunity to ask for any parting thoughts that each of you have on patients who are right now feeling like either they have some symptoms, maybe they need to get it checked out and they're not quite sure. Am I going to look like I'm overthinking things or should I just go on in? What, what is normal? What is not normal? Uh, when should they seek the attention of a medical expert? And then for those who are actively suffering, they know something's going on. They're just not sure in which direction they should head. What are the thoughts that, that you can provide for, for those folks as well? Dr. Giles, I'd love to start with you. Sure. I mean, I think first and foremost, once again, I'm not the, I'm typically not the first person in the, in the chain, but I know from my perspective, I see way too often patients get to me and they've been struggling for years. There's no reason to suffer and, and at least not get appropriate, uh, the, the appropriate information about this. If you're struggling with reflux, uh, with trouble swallowing, um, with terrible nausea, things that are affecting your quality of life. These are not just things that happen once a year uh, that are fleeting and only happen for 30 minutes. These are people whose daily life is affected by this. Uh, you, you should just go to your primary care doctor and say, hey, I'd like to I'd like to start an investigation in this and get them to send you to the appropriate people. Uh, that's probably not going to be a surgeon right offhand, but um, it may ultimately end up there. And if it does, that, that may be the thing that really gives you your life back. And there's no reason that we only get one shot at this and uh, and take every advantage of it um, is my best advice. Thank you, Dr. Kalun. I completely agree with Dr. Giles. Um, you know, there's no reason to suffer. Um, if patients have had symptoms that have not gone away, um, there's something more than uh, that needs to be looked at further, uh, which could involve talking to your primary care doctor um, and um, going on to some over-the-counter treatment options or some prescription medicine options uh, to see if things work or do not work. And um, if things still do not work, then there's definitely options available out there that can be very helpful in terms of bringing the quality of life back. Um, so I think the first step would be to discuss with your primary care physician. Uh, a few things I would definitely like to point out, um, you know, some, some things that we call red flag symptoms. If you have those, uh, definitely do bring it up to the attention to your doctors. Um, and those would be if you've had any trouble swallowing, if you have ever vomited um, blood, um, weight loss, um, loss of appetite, um, if you um, have had symptoms for a very long time that have not been responding to some uh, over-the-counter or even prescription PPIs or H2 blocker medicines, um, those are definitely things that you should bring um, to your doctor's attention because that would require more um, investigation. And once your primary care doctor has looked into some of these things, um, they can do some very early testing, which could involve an esophagogram or a CT scan uh, or even just a plain abdominal film, uh, just to kind of rule out anything major. And once those things have been looked into, um, then they can uh, seek more of a specialist care with a gastroenterologist. Um, and then we start work up um, from there on and, and try some of, some of the medicines. Uh, but, but especially if you've had symptoms for a very long time that have not gone away, uh, that is definitely a reason to talk to your primary doctor about that. Uh, and also if your symptoms have not gone away with traditional treatments. Uh, that would be more of a reason to um, to discuss a gastroenterology referral. Thank you. Well, I can't thank you both enough for this evening. This has been super informative. I know that we've got a lot of conversations going on in our comments box. So 
Uh, really, really appreciate the time that you have spent with us this evening. Audience, if you are in the Chattanooga, Tennessee area uh, and are looking for physicians, obviously two great ones are sitting with us this evening. If you are not in the Chattanooga area, are looking for a TIF specialist who might be able to help with your care pathway, you can certainly check GERDhelp.com. Go ahead and uh, access our physician locator, which is in the top right-hand corner of the screen. You can enter your zip code or your state and find TIF specialists in your area. We also have the first of its kind patient education app for GERD patients. The, it, the app is called GERD Help. You can go ahead and type that in in the iOS uh, app store or on the Android app store. Uh, you can find information not only on symptoms, on treatment options that are available, you can also use it as a personal journal uh, to record diet, to record vital signs, have lots of information to take into your physician when you do decide that it's time for that GERD consultation. Also videos and articles are uh, at your fingertips. So we hope you'll take advantage of that as well. It's been an absolute honor speaking with you this evening tonight. And uh, we appreciate you being with us so very much, Drs. Colin and Dr. Giles. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next Tuesday. If you are suffering from chronic acid reflux and want more information, please visit GERDhelp.com or download our GERD Help mobile app. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of TIFF Talk. Leave your questions and comments on our social media at GERD Help. Live well, gird free.